You are listening to an Enoch Pratt Free Library podcast. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey journey starts here. Here. Nadine Strassen, and I'm delighted to be here with two very good friends and colleagues who have agreed to be in conversation with me about the ideas that are raised in my new book, Hate, Why We Should Resist It with Free Speech, Not Censorship. And I want to thank everybody at the library, including Faith, otherwise known as Teresa, uh, and Tracy, who couldn't be with us here tonight for putting it together. And most importantly, thank all of you for taking time from your busy lives to come here and talk about these important topics with us. So in the spirit of making it very conversational, which had, had been my goal, uh, when Tracy asked me who should introduce us, I said, well, we'll introduce ourselves. So uh, I already told you my name. I'm a law professor. I teach at New York Law School in New York City. I teach constitutional law, civil liberties, and First Amendment topics, which dovetails very much with my writing and research interests, but also with my advocacy interests. I've been a full-time advocate as well as lawyer and educator for my entire adult life. I've focused most of my efforts through the American Civil Liberties Union, the ACLU, Who's not everybody has heard of the ACLU, so my um, soundbite summary is that we defend all fundamental freedoms for all people, no matter who you are, no matter what you believe. Uh, we believe that you are entitled to equal fundamental rights, and including freedom of speech and, and equal protection of the laws, rights that are very much at issue in this book. And I think the only other thing I want you to know about myself is I wrote the book, and I'm very happy uh, to be talking about it with two um, very good friends and colleagues. Although, interestingly enough, I've read a lot of Danielle's work, and I've never met her in person, but I still feel as if we're friends. And Dwight, he and I are friends, and I must admit, I've never read any of your work. So it's like, (laughs) I get to see... I get. I get to see different them, And in alphabetical order, I'm first going to have Dan, by last name, have Danielle introduce herself. Sure, and I like that. And together, we are the perfect person to do this, right? Uh, So I'm Danielle Citrin. I teach at the University of Maryland School of Law. Um, And my book, Hate Crimes in Cyberspace, um, dovetails almost orthogonally with... um, wonderful book, uh, which is about, so my book and my work is about the targeted stalking and harassment of individuals um, and the ways in which law can, and Nadine talks about this a bit in in her wonderful book, but law can step in, both doctrinally as a matter of free speech values. um, I argue that tackling cyber harassment is, is fundamentally important, not only for people's economic lives, but also for their ability to speak, to engage Uh, to take advantage of all the things that our online life offers, you can't when you are under assault, right? When you are threatened with rape, uh, when there are fake ads put up about you online and impersonations that say you're interested in sex, um, when your reputation is damaged with lies that you have sexually transmitted diseases, 
um, and when your nude photos are posted online. So, and usually it's a perfect storm of all of those things. Um, yeah. Danielle does what I often do, which is I want you to introduce yourself. Okay. And then you're immediately launching oh, yeah. into the ideas, so we'll, which okay. are great. But tell us a little bit more about yourself. Okay. So <laughs> that's what I thought you I, I want to do whatever Nadine wants me to do, so absolutely. Okay. So I've been teaching at University of Maryland Law School for now 14 years. Uh, I'm an affiliate scholar at the Stanford Center on Internet and Society and an affiliate fellow at the Yale Information Society Project. I'm the chair of the board of the Electronic Privacy Information Center, so I really center a lot of my work on privacy and privacy advocacy um, and do a lot of popular writing as well as in law reviews. So how's that? That's great. Okay. okay. Well, you did, but you didn't say. Oh, no. Uh, where, where, did you, where did you go to undergrad? Oh. Okay. You did mention Oh, no, I didn't. Um, I went to Duke University in North Carolina. Uh, right, where Garrett, you actually went to law school with my husband, Lou Citrin. We've never discussed this before. Uh, I know, right? Like, he, he's like, Garrett was the smartest person in the entire law school. Um, and, uh, and then I went to Fordham Law School in New York, and I'll be visiting there as a visiting professor in the fall. Okay. Great. Okay. Thank you very much. I, I, I would have loved to have introduced both of these ladies. What, something, something that uh, she didn't say. She mentioned ACLU, but she didn't say that she was the first woman national president of ACLU and the longest serving president, uh, a national president, I believe, of ACLU, which is terribly important. And also, in, in, at a time when it's so difficult to find mates that, that you're equally yoked with, she had to be married to another brilliant person, lawyer, by the name of Ellie Nome. And those of you who have your smartphones, you can Google him, or Wikipedia. He's also a lawyer. They met in law school at Harvard, right? And uh, so she's a Harvard lawyer, so you know she's smart. And, and her husband is an economist. And what this guy has done, uh, he's, he teaches, he taught business at the Columbia School of Business, where he's, I think, Professor Emeritus. Okay, all right. All right. But, 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 but I think it's very important to know. It's, they, they're a wonderful power couple. Dwight Ellis is my name. I live in uh, Bowie, Maryland. I grew up in Washington, D.C. Uh, I, um, gee, I finished my, my undergraduate was uh, at D.C. Teachers College, which is now University of District of Columbia. Uh, majored in English. Uh, and went to law school much later. I went to uh, George Mason University Law School. So I have a law degree. I've not practiced law, but in, in a formal sense. Uh, not courtroom practicing, but I've taught law and I teach law at Bowie State University. Uh, you know, Bowie State, which was founded right here in Baltimore, 1865. Uh, I teach graduate and undergraduate students. Uh, my background, as far as employment is concerned, I spent 25 years as senior vice president with the National Association of Broadcasters. NAB is a trade association that represents the commercial broadcast stations. Uh, used to be ABC, CBS, and all that, and the independents and uh, stations. And my principal responsibility there, I was a lobbyist and I worked with the Congressional Black Caucus, the Hispanic Caucus, the Minority Caucuses, but also more importantly, my role was to, to pave a way so that people of color and women could get jobs in the industry and even uh, to owning uh, radio and television stations. If you've ever heard of uh, of Kathy Hughes. I know you have Radio One. 
uh, Kathy Hughes. I knew Kathy Hughes when Kathy was selling airtime at WHUR at Howard University. That's how far back we go. So that's, that's what I did there. And uh, when I retired in 2004 from the NAB, I, uh, I worked, uh, I had an uh, international media consultancy that I ran for about three or four years. And uh, then I started teaching at uh, Bowie State University now about 11 years ago. And I'm amazed that I'm still there. But that's my background. So we agreed that we would each speak um, fairly briefly. We want to have a lot of time for conversation among ourselves and also with the, with the audience. So let me stand so I can see all of you. We did. System. I'm sorry. That's okay. I actually, I don't even want the table to be between me and the audience. I want to be kind of informal. Great. Uh, so maybe I'll take a chair. Is that okay? I like it. <laughs> okay. So uh, I wrote the book to deal with an issue that obviously has been controversial forever, the topic of hate speech both in this country and around the world. And in fact, it's a topic I've been debating for my entire de uh, adult life. Uh, some, how many of you have heard of the Skokie case? Some people have, so it, um, if you'll bear with me, for those who haven't, uh, it was a case that the ACLU handled in 1977 to 78, just when we got out of law school, uh, in which the ACLU defended the free speech rights of a group of neo-Nazis to demonstrate in Skokie, Illinois, a town that has a large Jewish population, many of whom were also Holocaust survivors. And uh, the ACLU has always taken the position that is attributed famously to Voltaire. I may disagree with what you say, but I defend to the death your right to say it. So even though the ACLU throughout its history forefront of advocating for equal rights and against discrimination and worked hand in glove with the NAACP and fighting racial segregation, we still defend the free speech rights of those who take a different point of view. Uh, and I, even as, I would say, especially as the daughter of a Holocaust survivor, not just even as, uh, I concluded that that was the correct position because those of us who are members of minority groups are never going to be able to count on majority political power. And therefore, we really depend on having free speech to advocate positions that are often, not usually, going to be unpopular with those who would majoritarian power. Um, so, um, for example, uh, and my book starts by quoting Martin Luther King and Barack Obama, uh, as, as well as the executive director of the ACLU at the time of the Skokie case, uh, in opening epigrams. Every single one of them makes the point that uh, it is minorities who depend especially on robust freedom of speech for a number of reasons, including that if government has the power to pick and choose expression that is so deemed to be so hated or hateful 
by the majority, it is often going to be, if not usually going to be, a speech that is advocating equal rights, that is challenging the status quo, that is subject to repression. And so in fact, throughout our history, every crusader for racial justice, every crusader for gender justice, rights of various other minority groups, has also been a very strong advocate of free speech, including for uh, hateful speech. So uh, I debated this issue repeatedly, including in the 1980s and 90s when so-called hate speech codes on college campuses were instituted. And then, frankly, I got really <coughs> tired of the topic. I felt I had nothing more to say. And I thought that those who were advocating more restrictions had nothing new to say. And I kind of um, shut up. And uh, I, I mean, I continued to debate the subject, but I didn't write about it. And then a few years ago, when we started having this resurgence of student activism on campus, and it really started in the wake of the uh, Ferguson, Missouri episode. And I have to tell you that ACLU for decades has been um, protesting police abuse and over-criminalization and uh, shooting of unarmed black men. And so the fact that this issue was finally getting some public traction, including on college campuses, which had been rather dormant. I mean, I was a student activist when I was uh, in college, and I kind of missed the fact that students for many decades were being rather passive. So I was thrilled to see this resurgence of activism in support of racial justice and uh, justice uh, in general, you know, sexual harassment, sexual assault, rights of immigrants, and so forth. But I was rather heartbroken to see that so many students apparently saw free speech as their enemy rather than as their, what I believed it to be, the time-tested ally. And being a, an activist and an educator, I took that as a challenge. Clearly, I had not been persuasive enough, and other people who took my position had not been persuasive enough in making the case. And so I tried to do it more persuasively. And I, and I was open-minded about it. Um, I, I'm convinced that if I had found evidence that um, suppressing more hateful speech would be an effective way to promote human rights and equality and diversity and inclusivity and societal harmony and all those fabulous goals that I and the ACLU support, then I would have been uh, much more open-minded about increasing government's power to censor hate speech. But to my surprise, uh, I found, I mean, I wasn't surprised that I found this consistent pattern that even laws that are so well-intended, right? I have no doubt that people who advocate suppressing hate speech uh, really believe and hope that it will help to advance these very important goals that I also share. Uh, but I was not surprised to see that, as always, these laws are at best ineffective and at worst counterproductive. Uh, we see a pattern in many countries around the world that do uh, uh, repress hate speech that uh, those laws are disproportionately enforced against the very minority groups that are supposedly the beneficiaries of the law. And that's not, that's not really any coincidence, right? When you think about it, um, we know that there are patterns of 
systemic structural discrimination that mar our criminal justice system, that mar our civil justice system. We know that there is unconscious, uh, so-called unintended, some people call it implicit bias on the part of individuals. So why in the world would we believe that handing over what is an inherently discretionary power to decide what speech is sufficiently faithful that it should be repressed, why in the world would we expect those laws to be enforced in a way that's friendly to members of minority groups any more than the, the drug laws are enforced in such a way. So I wasn't surprised, I was disappointed but not surprised uh, to find those patterns still existed. But what did surprise me was how many human rights activists in other countries and in international human rights agencies are criticizing their country's laws and saying we ought to move more in the direction of the United States. That surprised me because I know uh, our country is often criticized for American exceptionalism. And believe me, if we were exceptional uh, because we you know, were super supportive of free speech or super supportive of racial equality or any of those great goals, I would be proud of it. Uh, and, uh, but I was, I was surprised that even without the compulsion of the First Amendment, which these other countries don't have, purely from a policy perspective in terms of advancing these shared goals of uh, reducing discrimination and violent intergroup violence that they advocate moving more in the American direction. So I'm probably uh, way over time, so I'm gonna make two more points very, I'm just gonna make one, I'll, I'll tell you what some points are that I can make in our discussion. Um, one, the term hate speech really, I should be putting in air quotes, it's in quotes all the way through the book. This is the one legalistic point I'm gonna make. Uh, it is not a recognized term, a uh, legal term. There is no definition <coughs> of speech that the Supreme Court or any other body has given us that is uh, labeled hate speech and for that reason unprotected under the Constitution. Uh, the court has over and over said that the bedrock principle of the First Amendment is what it calls viewpoint neutrality, that government may never punish speech because of dislike or fear of or emotional disturbance uh, due to its viewpoint, its message, its idea, or its content. Uh, if we dislike that, we have to respond with more speech, not censorship. However, hate speech, uh, and I use it the way it's used in everyday language. I, I mean, in fairness, people use the term hate speech really to describe whatever speech they dislike or hate or fear. Um, but it's usually used to, to uh, designate speech that is discriminatory or hateful or conveys stereotypes on the basis of race, religion, gender, and so forth. Um, speech that has that idea, that hateful or discriminatory idea, along with other speech, may be censored if in particular contexts it directly causes specific imminent serious harm. So it can't be punished just based on its content, but in a particular context it may be punished. And sadly, we do have a lot of incidents of hateful speech 
uh, that do satisfy that standard. You know, they convey a direct threat or intentional incitement of imminent violence or targeted harassment to get to some of the points that Danielle was making. So I developed a more robust appreciation of how nuanced American law is. It really does allow appropriately punishment of a lot of hateful speech uh, that in fact is the most likely to and does cause uh, direct harm. The second point that I'm going to make, and then I'll shut up for now, is, if I may, thanks, Dwight. Um, the book, um, so here's the word hate, and that's the main title, but it's intended to be drowned out by the subtitle. And the book designer, this was all his idea, uh, and that's really amazing. He uh, chose the font in which the U.S. Constitution is written. It may look familiar to you for that reason. That wasn't my idea, but it's brilliant. Um, because it is constitutional values that I believe uh, will appropriately resist the force of hate. So the subtitle, Why We Should Resist It with Free Speech, Not Censorship. And the only verb in this title is resist. I really am urging that all of us has a moral responsibility uh, to raise our voices, especially those of us who oppose censorship, that we have a special moral responsibility to speak up against hatred and discrimination at every opportunity. And, um, and also, our society has a responsibility to pursue other non-sensorial methods for countering hate speech and countering the potential harms that could flow from hate speech. And I was very encouraged. This was the other positive surprise I had um, from writing the book at what a robust flourishing we have in this country of people raising their voices, including on college campuses, including members of um, the disparaged minority groups themselves, but also including you know, top government officials, top university officials, and interestingly enough, the uh, European human rights activists and international agencies say, based on their experience with censorship, that counter speech, more speech rather than less, is much more likely. I'm quoting the European Commission Against Racism and Intolerance. Uh, counter speech is much more likely to be effective than <coughs> censorship in actually countering the potential adverse impacts of hate speech. And, um, if you're interested, I can give you some examples, but for now I'm going to do what I promised and uh, turn it over to my distinguished friends and co-conversationalists. Co so I'm going to pick up. Oh, sorry. Yeah, I'm going to pick up. Okay, so I'm going to pick up just where you left off with the title and the, what animates it. And what animates free speech theory? The twin ideas that one, we think it's far better to respond with counter speech to hateful, offensive, ugly, disgusting ideas that we protect. And as well, a separate but connected conception of free speech is our distrust of power, right? Okay, so let's just take, and I'm referring us into the 21st century. Um, I want us to think about the difficulties to leverage counter speech in an age, this is not a critique, I feel yeah. like I share all the values you do, 
But in an age in which we live in a filter bubble, right, of our echo chambers of Facebook, where we're, where we are in, we are polarized, right? We surround ourselves with similar ideas. So the idea that counter conversation is going to pierce my Facebook bubble is probably unlikely, right? And that what attracts us, and this is according to social psychology and all of our understandings of, of our human limitations is the negative, right? We click on and we're more likely to be attracted by what's negative, right? And so we, the difficulty of counter-civil conversations is, is hard, right? We shouldn't give up. But the, the, I, the notion, I, and what has so, what to me is more powerful is, our, is a theory of distress. Right, the distrust of the powerful to tell us what ideas are on and off the table. Right, as as you put beautifully in your book, that though Brandeis urges us to engage as a moral duty of citizenship to speak. Right, that's how we become citizens. At the same time, uh, we also are scared of the powerful of government. Right, and so. What's interesting is that the, and this is my latest work, which we sort of have a shared interest in, the, in Europe, yeah. right? The Europeans have figured out that in the United States, where most tech platforms uh, exist, right, or, or founded in Silicon Valley or in Washington State, right, that they are governed by the First Amendment. And if we can't bully these platforms, what we're going to do is we, our government is going to, we're going to achieve what we want through, through governmental action. But we have limited resources, think European regulators, right? Uh, and they do chill a lot of speech. Right? And it's often not through prosecutions, but as Fleming Rose has explained to me, you just tell someone you're going to prosecute them for hateful speech, which is often political dissent, and they're quiet. Right, they go offline, they stop speaking. So there's really like there's not a lot of follow through, but we make clear to speakers in the European Union that they should be quiet. But what the European Commission has figured out is who's really powerful these days? It's not so much governments, but it's content platforms, right? That really it's not the US Constitution that governs speech, but the terms of service, right? And the European Commission and member states have figured this out that really where the power lies is with content platforms. Can I interject something, Danielle? Because I've found that most people don't know something that Danielle alluded to, which is that the Constitution, including the First Amendment, only applies to government. So it restrains government from engaging in censorship. But Facebook and Twitter and all these private companies, and for that matter, private universities uh, are not bound by the First Amendment at all. So if we want to protect our free speech against them, we have to use other either legal tools or consumer pressures. But That's not, where I'm going to go with you, because I'm going to ask you a yeah. question. So, okay. Are is you, that fair? Yeah. yeah. I, we're not there yet. Yeah. But yes, the, these tech companies, they're, they're private actors. They're not state actors, so they're not bound by the First Amendment. Um, but they're being pressured to change their content policies around hate speech and extremist speech and terrorist speech in ways that follow the European model and that they are adopting on a global scale. So that when you've got terms of service on Twitter or Facebook, it's the same terms of service and the same content policies in the US as it is in France, as it is in Germany, right? Okay, so so given that we've figured out 
or Europe has figured out that the pressure are di- we're we're going to resist right with mm-hmm. this trust mm-hmm. power, mm-hmm. Uh, and European countries have figured out the really powerful players really that's themselves, but they're going to leverage their power to pressure companies in a way that's not very transparent and isn't accountable, right? Uh, and they're going to pressure them to take down or filter, before we ever see it, use algorithms to filter hateful speech. So we don't even know it's there. It's speech we never know we've got to counter because we're not given the opportunity to counter it, right? It never is visible. It's hidden because algorithms in conjunction with pressure from government and then actors acting on behalf of European governments are making it disappear, right? It's not existing. And so the question that I have is given that that's in the background and that there are many companies that make up our digital infrastructure. So we were talking about Facebook and Twitter, and they're at the content layer. But there are entities, private entities, that are responsible for everything we see online, and that includes security companies like Cloudflare. It includes the backbone, ISPs, broadband providers, our browsers, right? There is a delicate interplay of a num- numerous hundreds of private companies that are delivering what we think of as the internet, right? And those companies all are immune from liability in the United States for anything there, anything that flows through their, I want to call them pipes, but it's, it's maybe the wrong metaphor, right? But, but anything that comes across the digital wire, so to speak, right? And yet at the same time, they're being used and pressured Right to mm-hmm. be le- not neutral. They don't have to be neutral. Mm-hmm. They're not neutral, mm-hmm. right? Content platforms have terms of service that are pages and pages long. And as Zuckerberg just got grilled before Congress, mm-hmm. right? They're not. They're not neutral, and they may. They're censoring all the time, right? Should so. This is my question. Given the different layers of the digital infrastructure, uh, should we think of them all as the same? Should we think of, if we think about them differently, and we think about them based on the power that they have, how should we treat them? Should we treat them? That's what I hope that you would answer, because you're the expert on this Okay, no, and we can, right? Talk about concepts of public accommodation and public utilities, right? And that if we treat Facebook and Twitter like a public utility, it's not going to be fun to be on Facebook or Twitter, because I want them removing spam. I want them removing non-consensual pornography. I want them removing true threats, yeah. right? Yeah. So I guess the I think what we've got to wrestle with now mm-hmm. is leveraging the distrust of power theory yeah. and saying that distrust of power theory should also include distrust of private oh, power, absolutely. right? So Neil Richards and I are doing work on this. It, we have a piece coming out about how the free speech should understand distrust of private power, right. but then what do we do with that? So I you think know, these, Daniel is a real expert on these issues, and I, I'll just briefly comment on that before we um, hear Dwight's input. And I invited Danielle specifically to, uh, because of her expertise on in the online realm, which my book touches on, but says this is a book about government censorship, but there, there's this other really serious problem here. And I'd say the main, uh, I distrust the private sector companies as well for the same reason. I mean, we're, based, we're taking a concept that is inherently subjective, right? Hate. It's an emotion. 
And um, mark my words, look for how people use the term hate speech, and you will see that it is used for everything. Some people have called Black Lives Matter activism hate speech. A couple of state legislators have considered resolutions to treat Black Lives Matter as a hate group. Other people say, well, Blue Lives Matter is hate speech. Other people say all lives matter is hate speech. And, you know, the definitions, I've gone through every law that exists, every law that's been proposed, and and there's... There's no clear wording possible, right? Disparaging, demeaning, degrading. Um, And so the reason why I distrust anybody who's enforcing it is that their values are not going to be my values. Why should I delegate either to a private sector entity or to a government official the power to decide that, well, that is a message that nobody should be able to hear. And I guess in, in the early internet era, which, you know, way, way back when the internet first burst on uh, public consciousness, the ACLU was advocating um, user end filtering options. So I would like something closer to that, that there's not somebody else that's taking those disvalue, inevitably value-based decisions away from me as an end user to decide for myself what I do want to see or not, or for my own small children, what I do want to see or not. And um, one of the things that is illustrated by the information we do have about how Facebook et al. have used their power is, guess what? They've used it in a way that is not friendly to civil rights. So for uh, the last several years, there's been this very large coalition, almost 80 civil rights and civil liberties organizations, including the ACLU, uh, that have complained to Facebook that, it, and I'm just using Facebook no. as an example, yeah. um, others have similar problems, that, um, that disproportionately it is taking down uh, communications about police abuse and about other misconduct by government officials and treating that as hate speech. Pipeline protesters, people who are objecting to uh, abuse of government or excess government power. And again, we shouldn't be surprised. So I use that as an object lesson for distrusting for yeah. all, of the, all of the above. And so just to, to yeah. build yeah. on that, Sean Johnson, who writes for The Intercept but was one, uh, one of the many leaders of Black Lives Movement, he was kicked off Facebook for a week because he was writing about the hate speech he was receiving. Exactly. And he was writing about it to his Facebook followers, of which I am one of thousands of his followers, right? So he's writing about the hate speech he's getting in his inbox, Facebook Messenger, Twitter. He's just writing about it. He's saying, look at this, what I'm getting. And he was taken down for a week, right? And so the I think a wonderful illustration of your concern and long-standing concern, right, that often we, when we invoke the First Amendment and think about its values, it's because it's going to protect minor, you know, the, the disenfranchised, the vulnerable, the minority speaker, right? Um, and it's been co-opted a little bit by companies these mm-hmm. days, right, First Amendment doctrine, but, but I say we take it back. <laughs> Good for you. Okay. Um, happy 73rd anniversary of V-Day. You remember that? Oh. Um, 
when I, uh, V-Day for those that you never heard of V-Day, you know. Well, we had a war, uh, World War II. And uh, that ended, what, 1945? Uh, when, um, when a president uh, who followed a godlike president, the godlike president was uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. They gave us things like Social Security and all those wonderful things that your grandparents tell you about. And he had a vice president uh, who came from a, a little town in Missouri who was a haberdashery. He sold hats. And uh, this little guy uh, followed when, when Roosevelt died. He became president. He was vice president. And, uh, and not very many people expected very much from this guy because he had Midwestern values. He didn't think much of black people. He used the N-word a, a lot of times. You know, I mean, he was just a salt, a salty guy. But amazingly, this is the guy who, well, what you should know is, as a student, or all of you know, uh, this is the guy who made the uh, the decision to drop the uh, the atom bomb on Nagasaki and Hiroshima. And of course, we're the only country in the world to ever virtually nearly obliterate a group of people on the planet, namely the Japanese, scared the hell out of them so much. They said, we'll never raise an army again, and you know, and all that we helped rebuild them as we helped to rebuild Europe, you know, Germany after we took Germany down. But the point that I'm, I'm moving towards is that this little guy um, who decided to use the bomb to end the war, he noticed something else. He wasn't a great lover of black people necessarily. Uh, his parents didn't like Abraham Lincoln very much. He was a real southerner. But this is the president who decided that when he heard that when the black soldiers were coming back from World War II and they were treated like dirt and worse and lynched and everything else, he says, what the hell is going on? He integrated the armed forces. That was his story. That's almost like, like another guy from Texas who followed uh, another beloved president named Kennedy, uh, who, you know, you know, Camelot and all of Kennedy. And Kennedy had no tremendous, great, great love for black people either. Uh, it was more of his brother who did. And, uh, but when Kennedy was assassinated, who would, who would succeed him who would become the greatest American president when it comes to people of color and others in terms of civil rights, Lyndon Baines Johnson. Who would have thought? Now, the point here is, is that what you're hearing a lot uh, and what's going on now with social media and, uh, and artificial intelligence and robotics and all that, which, which plays a part in all this, and, and hate speech and, and, and hate codes and, and a variety of things, is that somebody has to make a decision, as, as, uh, as my colleague said, somebody has to program either the robots or someone has to, has to, has to use the, 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 uh, the uh, um, um, algorithms. You know, some young kid or old kid has to come up with the algorithm to make these, uh, these devices and these machines operate the way we want them to operate. So, Who's going to do that? Who determines what is hateful, what is undesirable? Um, we live in a corporate entity in the United States of America. We say in God we trust, but we really trust 
the almighty dollar. We are a corporate entity, and there are many who feel in Washington that we are moving towards very rapidly a corporate state. This thing that we call government, that it's the people like maybe the Cato Institute where we were yesterday. The Cato Institute, you ever heard of Cato Institution? They're libertarians. Libertarians believe that, hey, uh, we believe in liberty. You do whatever you want to do as long as you don't hurt the other person. We don't want government to hell with government. Get government out. And, and of course, we are the, still the richest country in the world. So we're the richest country in the world because we, because of how we got here. And I got there, and, and I have to go through that. So we're moving in a place where, where we have all this new, new emerging technologies. And we still have a US Constitution that's a living Constitution, presumably, which means it's changeable. And things are happening very rapidly. If we had a civil rights movement, which took about 10 or 12 years or whatever, with, with, with the millennials, and there are 5 million more millennials, incidentally, who are transforming society than baby boomers who transformed society in the 60s and 70s. There are 5 million of her. I assume you're a baby boomer. And, and they, are, they are absolutely the future. Yeah. So if they, if they feel that, that social media and all of the wonderful things, cloud technology and all the stuff that we're into is the answer, and that we need this liberty and forget about we don't need uh, codes to tell people how to act or what to say or don't use the N-word or the A-word or whatever word you're going to use, and we'll all get along happy. Well. My point is that I don't think we can kick government to the, to the curb yet. We're sitting in Baltimore, and we all know Baltimore. Black Lives Matter, from my point of view, started here with the guy that she mentioned. And you know, when I pull up here from, when I came from Bowie State University and I went by the market, the great market there, I remember when that market was drug free. And I happened to ro roll through here my six series BMW at the top down. And I didn't realize where I was coming because I had never been over, I had been over in this section of town in a number of years. I usually go other places. And when I pulled up in the stoplight and, and there were two cars in the middle of the street, this is about half an hour ago. And, and the, guy, the guy was dealing drugs right there, right in front of me. And this was what, a couple hours ago. And I sat there and waited for the light to change and, I, and he, the guy took off and I turned around and he was giving drugs to a guy in a wheelchair. And the guy in the wheelchair comes in front of my car, he salutes me as he walks by, as he rolls by, and I turned and came up here. What I'm, what I'm getting is black people, especially African Americans, have a great need for government assistance on a whole lot of levels. Um, and and while I, I, as a lawyer, I, I firmly believe in First Amendment uh, protections, in the protection of First Amendment, and, and even some of the liberties that the, uh, that the libertarians believe in, but I worry about my people because I am a professor at Bowie State University, which was founded in this town, in the basement of a Baptist church somewhere near here. You probably know that in 1865 by freed slaves. And we have now 7,000 students on a 300-acre campus, which is beautiful. 
you ever seen it. It's wonderful. And I teach grad and undergrad, and I worry about my students. Mm -hmm. Because while we can talk about counter speech, for example, rather than codes or laws, I think that to be a citizen, I tell my students, to be a citizen of this country, you have a responsibility. You have a responsibility to elect people to represent you, like Elijah Cummings in this community, to elect people locally like your mayor, whom I've known for a long time, wonderful woman mayor here, like we have one in DC. And so, so many, many of the younger, the millennials, and some of the Gen Xs look at what's happening, gentrification in Baltimore and DC and say, damn, we are really getting there. I mean, look at all the beautiful buildings, what, five or six blocks from here. And Baltimore is coming into its own and DC is coming into its own. But I live in Prince George's County, which incidentally has the richest percentage of African Americans in the United States. That is the black Fairfax. No, Fairfax, Virginia, so is the where riches. Well, in where I live, I am not teaching ghetto kids. I am teaching undergraduates and graduates who come from middle and upper middle class homes. Reading is not a habit. Now, reading is not generally adopted or embraced by anybody, regardless of race, millennial especially. Reading is not something. Critical thinking is not a practice. And, 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 and it, when you're teaching somebody and you're in history, you have to know where you've been to know where you're going to go and to get there properly. I don't see this to my students. I worry about it. As far as, and I'm going to slow down a little bit, as far as non-minorities are concerned, we are still minorities as African Americans. So I'm talking about Asians and Latinos. We are still... We're still a minority in this country, and we can't afford to lose 20, 25% of our population. You can afford to do that. You can afford to elect a president with 35% of the vote, who is one of the crudest people, I think most of us agree, that a politician we've ever had in this country. And, and you can laugh and ah, gee. And we, we are closest to having a dictatorship than we have ever had, ever in the history of this country. And we don't know what's going to happen in the midterm elections which started today in certain parts of the country. We don't know what's going to happen. But I fear for the black people because they are the leaders, the black men and women your age, 18 to 34, who are going to be the legislators. They're, they're going to be the people, hopefully, who will be using algorithms to, 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 to program these machines. And, 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 and be involved in deep learning, DL, deep learning for all these machines that, that will save us from all of this drudgery that we're about even thinking. And even, even there, was, there was a conference in New York about three weeks ago, a law conference, where they were talking about, they said within about five to 10 years with artificial intelligence, they will be, they'll use that to, um, uh, 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 they're, they're gonna use it in the courts, the whole legal system will be incredibly automated to a much greater degree than it is now. We can much more efficiently put people in jail. We can more efficiently punish people. And you know where that takes us. So I don't know what's going to happen to black people. We will always have a black elite. 
and like like Billy, like like uh, like the great lawyer we talked about, and and Baltimore has some very wealthy people living here, and I know that, but that that elite is they're in trouble now because the majority of them, mm -hmm. the younger people, are not absolutely following following suit. And one, one last thing I want to say, we were talking about portals. You know, we have silos, silos. Everybody, everybody, everybody is in their own little silo. And there are many, many portals now. My students don't watch television anymore, right? They laughed at me, I said, did you see this show, even, even on cable, documentaries? I don't look, look, I have all these other platforms. I, I watch TV or I watch whatever on my smartphone. And besides, I use, I look at podcasts. And I get my news from, from YouTube. And, and, and then they, they tell me about places I don't even know about. They talk about something like uh, hip -hop, uh, uh, allhiphop.com. You ever heard about that? Allhiphop.com is a 12-year-old organization that is a portal on, on the internet that, that gives you news, uh, gossip, uh, uh, black history, just a whole range in, in addition to entertainment. I have graduate students who also tell me that because they've been so programmed as younger kids to think so quickly, they have very short attention spans. Last week, last week, I showed a 15-minute video to a graduate class. I said, I want you to look at this, and there's some nuances that I want you to pull from this 15 minutes. One of my best students, who was an African student, an A student, he was sitting by the window, and 10 minutes into the 15-minute, I noticed he started looking out the window. It was 7.30. It, you couldn't see anything. It was black outside the window. It's a night class. And at the end of at the 15 minutes, I posed questions. Did you see this, what I wanted you to see relative to my team? And, and a few students did. And I turned to my best student and I said, uh, I said, Quan, did you see that? He says, no, I didn't see that. I said, did you know why he didn't see it? He says, no. I said, you were looking out the window. He said, I was? And he almost broke down and cried. He said, Professor, he said, I apologize. He said, there is something wrong with me. This last week, he says, I have a very short attention span. He says, he says I can't watch the news unless it's something funny. Mm -hmm. well. That's why, that's why, and I'm going to stop, that's why if you watch CNN and that United Shades of, um, you know, that little, that clownish guy with the big thing, you know, and, and, and you notice that many of the comics are now offering news. That's because they know that their audiences can't, can't look at anything too seriously. If they don't laugh at it, they don't absorb it. We have some big problems. So I think government, government has to be considered in this. I mean, we have to do some things on our own in our various communities. But we can't go the full route of corporate America. And, and I have some other things to say, and I'm sorry if I drifted off no, no, too I much. Think you I wanted to give yeah. you some kernels. Yeah, I, I think that's, that's very powerful. And, and, and the link that, I mean, there are a number of links, but one that I make, which 
uh, that I will make, which for me has been a recurrent theme of all sensorial efforts, including to suppress hate speech, is that they are so superficial, right? And they are diversions from the actual problems, right? We do have a problem of, I mean, hate is the word that's used, but it's also discrimination and inequality and perpetuation and increasing inequality, which as has always fallen along racial fault lines. And I think, you know, to talk about suppressing some speech is to divert attention and energy from more constructive measures for uh, truly bringing about equality. And Dwight knows that uh, I am a civil libertarian, oh, not sure. a libertarian, yes, and I believe not. government has mm -hmm. enormous responsibility here. Uh, just that I think government responsibility and power should be used in different ways. And, and let me mention one, you know, putting on my law professor hat, uh, I explained that hate speech is not a recognized legal concept, but hate crime is, and that's something that's very important that our government does, as well as enforcing laws against discrimination, which unfortunately doesn't necessarily happen in other countries that do go after the speech, but not after the discriminatory conduct. Uh, so in this country, if something is independently a crime, such as an assault or vandalism, but the, the victim is singled out because of a discriminatory reason, such as race, it can appropriately be treated as a more serious crime. Um, so I think we've been talking a lot. We have such interesting things to say. I think we should turn it over to yeah. the audience. Do, do yes. you agree, mm -hmm. um, yeah, please. Teresa mm -hmm. and Faith? Yeah. So we know a lot of stuff, but yeah. you know, hit us with what. what <laughs> and and you all know a lot of stuff, too. <laughs> So questions, comments? If not, you know, we can keep on going. So I'm here. Yeah. Um, in the movie theater, mm -hmm. before the movie even mm -hmm. there all these voices. If I'm hearing you right, that all these voices in the sold-out theater is speaking hate in their own right, mm -hmm. in their own definition. Mm -hmm. So how you navigate something like that? All this noise can be very, very overwhelming. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and what, and what do you, what do you do when, when you're overwhelmed with all that? What, what, what's your reaction to that? When you're overwhelmed with it, what do you do personally? Shut down. That's yeah. it. You come to the library and you listen to us instead. <laughs> well, you, but you're not here, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that may be well. Well, I'm yeah. resonating with you is that that noise is often how we think of some of the content platforms, right? That it's just so much noise that there's never really a one-to-one -one conversation where we say, okay, here's an idea, let me debate it. Let me show you just how despicable you really are. Um, and it's very difficult to have those meaningful, responsive counter conversations, right? Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean we should give up, but I think you're right, The all of that noise it doesn't mean we say we should ban the noise or the speech, right? But rather, we need different kinds of interventions too, right? So, so you mentioned con context. Mm -hmm. So we live in a context now where there is a forced 
that's taking this noise mm -hmm. and making it louder. Mm -hmm. I believe by intent and by design. Right, yeah, more clicks. You got right, no. Yeah, if, if it makes money. Right. So I mean, I mean look, look, look at your, look, look, look at our friend Kanye. Yeah, mm -hmm. right. Kanye, Kanye has a new record that's going to drop very soon, right? Yeah. And he's out there promoting his record by saying, hey, Right. Said so we, you know, 400 years of slavery was something that we really wanted to have. We asked for it. Yeah, that, that we asked for it. And he knows, he knows what controversy will get him. And, and the problems that he had, you know, he, so he was family with Jay-Z and, and, and Beyonce. And they fell out, you know, you know that whole history. I know, they, but I don't want to know. Please. Yeah, but, 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 but that's, that's yeah. news to them. That's where a lot of values... And please tell me, give me your feedback. My students, they get their values from a lot of these celebrities. And, uh, and I'm not saying that, you know, I love celebrities. You know, one of the things that happened, you know, it's interesting. When, what's his name, got the, uh, the, um, the, um, the Pulitzer Prize, what's his name? No. Oh, uh, no. Oh, Kendrick Lamar. No. Oh, Kendrick. Kendrick. Yeah. Do, 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 you, do you know? Do you know what they're talking about Kendrick? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Do you do you know what that you know what that means? Mm -hmm. Now, I mean, of course, it means he's going to make more money and all that. But more importantly, that the establishment mm -hmm. has finally they have they 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 accept hip hop with mm -hmm. all oh, of its yeah. everything. Yeah. 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 The Peabody. I'm on the Peabody board. The Peabody and the Pulitzer are the two highest awards given in journalism in the United States. You know, this is the first, before it was classical music and jazz. Hip-hop, if you know the history of hip-hop, and I mean, I like hip-hop, you know, I like various forms of hip-hop, but for that to happen, that makes a statement about a lot of other things. And, and, and I think as a parent, parents know it, you don't have to be a black parent because, you know, you know your kids love hip hop. Would not be what it is without the white community. White kids made hip hop. These guys were selling selling uh, things out the trunk of their cars, and they came to you guys, you know, and you made it the multi billion dollar industry. Because days. sixty-five to seventy percent of the consumers are white middle class kids. Yeah, fine. yeah, yeah. And I'm not I'm not being critical. I'm just, this is just the reality that I think we have to consider yeah. as yeah. we yeah. go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. And can I just respond yeah. to this concern or worry that, so I'm going to tie two of the things right that you said before, which is we worry <coughs> that our public sphere is automated in so many ways, right? That's who is designing yeah. and creating code and creating the infrastructure, right? Our for the most part, white, they they don't look diverse, right? Silicon Valley has a big gender gap and a huge racial gap, right? And so, they are it, inequality is being reinscribed not only in the design, but if as you talked about deep learning, machine learning, because it learns from data. Mm -hmm. If the data set is biased, we are reinscribing bias, right, to our architecture, and then pair that with. Uh, Dwight, your comments about where do we learn our values from, right? And we're learning our values from 
a public sphere which isn't public in any meaningful sense of the word. It's not the Boston Commons. It's run by private companies, right? Yes. And those private companies are being architected for all the things where, you know, it's reinscribing inequality, and we have an automated public sphere which isn't public, right? And so then it leads to the question of who do you trust? Who are we going to learn our culture from, right? And our students and the next generation, or right? Who, and for me, the where question we don't is, have this mass meet, you know, where we don't have trusted sources, yeah. Yeah. right, of news, and it's all so sorry to end with depressing fake news, but yeah, I well, mean, that's sort let, of let like me, where let, we're let, going let, to. Yeah, let me right? in your community. I don't know if you know this. You know Ta-Nehisi Coates is, right? Yes. You know Ta-Nehisi I mean, I don't know. This is where I, he, wish, I, I don't, wish we know. No, no, I don't know him personally either. But he was. This is where he was yeah. born, yeah. right? Yeah. This is. He is one of the great intellectuals of our time, right? What is Tanahasi doing now? Do you know what he's working on now? Comic yeah. books. Yeah. Comic books. Now, I have students. I never told you this. I have graduate and undergraduate students. I mean, everybody, I mean, I like Black Panther. I mean, it's a great movie, you know. I actually had students that say to me, Professor, I think that that country really exists. That, you know, you saw the movie, right? And that the blacks that put that movie together, they gave us, they finally found it, and they're sending us a signal. I mean, these weren't young kids, I swear to God. <laughs> on my, I'm on Facebook. And I have seen Facebook, you know, what do you call them when you, you're having a conversation? Right. Talking about that very thing. Yeah. Critical thinking, critical thinking. Now, now, what I'm afraid of, when I saw the movie, and I love the movie, and I saw it incidentally, with, I had a special showing, what I didn't mention to you, is that I served as a chief aide for Curtis Collins who was one of the first black women to serve in the U.S. Congress from Chicago. I was her chief of aid back in the early 70s. So I have ill experience on that whole law thing. I was invited. I was part, they had a special showing for the Congressional Black Caucus in Washington. And so I had the privilege of sitting there, and there are a large number of black women at the Black Caucus. And they went nuts over there, because Black Panther, it's a woman's movie. That is about female power. I mean, a lot of guys have, oh, you know. If you saw the movie, that, whatever his name was, that guy, he wouldn't have been anything without his sister. And, you know, that was women. I put that in the same category as Wonder Woman, yeah. as far as power women. And, and, and you should have heard those congresswomen squealing. They were so excited about the message that it was sending. You know, they really get into it. But as I saw that and I talked to my students, I said, oh my God. Before Tanahasi mentioned, and he was a consultant in that whole thing, he got to, before he got the comic book thing, I said, because a lot of students don't read well. I've had a graduate student say to me, and my, within my 10 years, I've had two grad students say to me at the beginning of the course, the first week, Professor, do I have to buy the book? For the course. So of course, you, so you have problems, you can't afford it. Mm -hmm. And this one student was a woman. She was about maybe 35 years old. She said, yes, I work, but I don't like to read. I said, what do you mean you don't like to read? Why are you pursuing your master's in organizational communications? She says, 
because my boss told me if I get a master's degree, I can make more money. I said, don't you want to be smart? She says, no, I just want to get it. I want to make more money. I'm telling you. And I, and, and, and I think uh, we've, we've had conversations. This is not a black issue, a black problem. This is somewhat of a generational thing in many, in many regards. Reading is not a general practice, not an acceptable practice. So I believe, and I predicted, and remember you heard it here, not that it's gonna so, so incredible to think this way, that as far as our elementary schools and our middle schools and high schools, because they're not reading, they will now, there'll be a market for comic books. Mm -hmm. They'll have comic, and that's what Tanahasi is doing. <laughs> He, and when you think about what other intellectuals are doing, and white intellectuals, Jewish intellectuals, are doing what these guys are doing, and others, I wonder what a lot of black intellectuals are looking at, and what we're doing. This gets to values, and oh, somebody's gonna make a ton of money. Stan Lee will probably be dead by then, but I'm sure his family is gonna make all that money you know, all the comic books that come out. So you're going to see, if you got young kids, you have young kids, your Generation Z, you know, your, your kids, they're going to have they're gonna comic books in school. Yeah. Uh, I have so, to you know, one of the many, oh, we, I, I, we all have many things to say, but why don't we see if other, uh, so you made a very provocative comment. You could have yeah. kept us going for very I'm sorry. Long. No, don't me. be sorry. It's great. Please. Anybody else have anything you want to throw on the table or questions? Nobody else? Oh, don't be shy. Oh, there you go. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm certainly sympathetic, agree with the idea of unfettered free speech and, and see its benefits, but um, a concern I have is that when you get into um, what we generally think of as hate speech or bias speech, um, that's generally considered unacceptable speech, um, but that some fringe elements enter into. Um, it, when, when it does enter into the, the public sphere, the other people hear it, it's empowering. It's not just adding to the conversation, it's empowering people who would otherwise be afraid to, to talk like this, to, to start talking like this. And so you, you almost create a movement um, by allowing one person to say it. And um, I don't know how you counter that with just more speech. Well, you do, actually. And I think if we look at... Uh, oh, so let, let me um, give you some historic perspective. I was very surprised when I went back and read the articles that had been written by um, very important law professors in the 80s and early 90s arguing for the first time that we should have hate speech codes on college campuses because uh, they talked about the psychic harm and the emotional harm and uh, that can have physiological manifestations and it can result in suppressing speech on the part of people who are targeted by hate speech. And those are very serious arguments, right? Mm -hmm. uh, that they, per they persuaded the ACLU that of course we had to re-examine our position even though we had taken the, the uh, uh, anti-censorship position in the Skokie case about a decade earlier, but these were new arguments that were being made and behooved a re-examination. 
uh, as a result of the re-examination, we, we reached the conclusion that censorship would do more harm than good. But I went back and I reread those articles, and to my surprise, they said the harm came not so much from the speech itself as from the complete isolation and alienation that um, they were focusing mostly on college campuses that the targeted students felt because nobody was coming to their support or their defense. The media then wasn't even covering incidents of hate speech or even hate crime. And you didn't have university presidents making any statements. You didn't have student body leaders making any statements. Uh, you didn't have the community rallying around. Now, fast forward to a little bit a few months ago, well, more than a few months ago, September 2017, BuzzFeed issued what it called the most comprehensive survey of hate speech on campuses since the November election, because there are a lot of indications that since then, and I think this goes to your point, a lot of people have felt more empowered and more liberated to give voice to views that they may well have harbored anyway. By the way, if somebody has a hateful view, I'd rather hear it than not hear it, because it gives me more means to, first of all, I can monitor them, make sure they don't actually engage in discriminatory conduct, but anyway, I digress. Um, the BuzzFeed survey said that students, by and large, including minority students, were very satisfied with the responses that their campus made that every single president issued a statement to the entire student body condemning the ideas and saying, you know, we may defend your right to say it, but these are not the values of this university, that student body leaders and the community as a whole rallied around those students. And I think even in the case, so, you know, we still have so far to go in dealing with all of the problems that Dwight has talked about, all of the problems in the criminal justice system and so forth. So I'm certainly no Pollyanna uh, when it comes to the situation of, of racial and other forms of injustice in this society. But we clearly have made the most enormous strides in, um, in counter speech, and not only by leaders and other community members, but to me, most encouragingly, by minority students themselves. So there have been, uh, for many, since the early, since the mid-60s, uh, a survey has been done every year of every single incoming college student. It's been done by a university in California and um, on attitudes about politics and race and gender and so forth. And in the last couple of years, we've seen record numbers of minority students, in particular African-American students, coming in and saying, we are committed to being active in support of racial justice and other social justice causes, not only on campus, but in the larger community, and not only while we're students, but afterwards. And I quote a guy named Sean Harper, who is a specialist on um, race and equity and education, used to be at Penn, he recently moved to USC, um, who calls this the unmuting of black collegians. So I, do, I think if anybody is disparaged now or lacks credibility, it's people who are you know, spouting those racist messages. Uh, certainly on campus communities as a whole and in our society as a whole. Yeah. 
something that, that, that you say, you, you mentioned in the book, uh, uh, when you, you talk about the uh, Germany and France mm -hmm. being the, uh, the two European countries that have the strongest uh, anti-hate speech uh, laws, uh, and how they're not working, or but and it didn't work I, I, in Germany it, it, in the third. Maybe you talk about yeah. this, right? Yeah, I'm like not it. sure if people, you know, how how many of you follow what's going on in Europe, but I mean, they have just an absolute crisis of um, discriminatory actions and violence against Jews against um, uh, Muslims, yeah. against uh, people, immigrants, and I mean, it's, it's a very, very serious problem that yeah. the suppression and, and strict punishment of, uh, of hateful speech, which does occur, has not muted. So speaking very personally, as the daughter of a Holocaust survivor from, from Germany who barely survived a concentration camp, I mean, I'm really frightened by the rise of anti-Semitism. Just as an example, I mean, it's anti-Roma and anti-Turks and, and many others. But I just read an article in the Atlantic Magazine, which you're probably familiar with from a few years ago, which was you know, basically saying that there's no future for Jews in Europe, that they've got to migrate either to Israel or to the United States because there's such uh, serious violence. And, um, in on the anniversary of Israel's independence on April 20th, just a couple weeks ago, um, a conservative columnist for the New York Times, Brett Stevens, wrote a piece talking about recent, you know, there have been recent brutal, horrible murders uh, in France and Germany of Jews and, um, and physical attacks. And he actually said, uh, Jews, in, if you are a Jew in Europe now, you are living on borrowed time. Those were his exact words. I committed them to memory. And, and this is despite, you know, their laws in punishing anti-Semitic speech are so strong that you can't, a newspaper cannot even criticize an Israeli government policy without facing prosecution and in some cases <coughs> conviction for anti-Semitic speech. So, you know, to me, that's the worst of both worlds. You're, you're suppressing what should clearly be uh, permitted debate about government policies, but you're not certainly not getting any payoff in terms of quelling the hatred and the violence. But you know, I, I say I, one thing? But that more than shows one thing. how important this work is, right? Because I feel like we could, you know, you, um, we should all enjoy and marinate just for a moment in the unmuting, right, as you said so eloquently, uh, that when university presidents mm -hmm. and the powerful do speak up and say hate is wrong, mm -hmm. we're not going to tell you to be quiet, but we're going to tell you it's wrongful, mm -hmm. that students feel mm -hmm. of color, Jewish, feel emboldened, and they feel unmuted, that I would say I, I hate this moment we're in, mm -hmm. but you know what, bless that we're here mm -hmm. having this moment mm -hmm. because I think we're going to be even more unmuted. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Like, I, I think Trump is a blip and we're going to move on. Sorry, I had to do it. Had to bring him up. Yeah. I guess we did before, right? But we're in this hateful moment. I think where we are, what's so important about this book is it shows us that within ourselves, we will be, that is, 
and I hate movements and civil rights and equality will come through and we'll unmute it the, the, for the, all the reasons you articulated. The silver lining to the cloud right? of, of the you know more uh, hateful speech surfacing is I think rather than silencing people, it has galvanized yeah. them, right? Sure. And we certainly saw that with high school students and younger Parkland. than high school students. Wait, exactly. Yeah, it's so been amazing. I, Black so Lives Matter, hash, the hashtag movements of Parkland, yeah. Yeah. right? But, and but, Black Lives Matter. Yeah. But, but you know, I, 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 would, I would agree and disagree on, on two things. I think the most powerful movements in the country now are, it isn't Black Lives Matter, it's the Me Too movement. Mm -hmm. And and because finally, sorry, it took a long time, friends. And there are more women in the world than men. Anyway. I don't know if it's more important, but yeah, no, no, Dolly, right? No, no, yeah, yeah. yeah. But but what it, what it's created? I mean, it's created a whole new yeah. issue that we're going to have. We're now having forget about race. It's now gender wars going on, and 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 they're they're going to get worse. I mean, right now we hear about it in the news, pretty much. It's, it's about Caucasians and yeah. women and their men. But it's spilling over into, you know, the, the, the Bill Cosby the issue. Right, the, yeah. you, know, you know, so... I mean, so, historically black colleges and universities, like Spelman was having some issue. Yeah. With, oh, yeah, yeah. Well, what, it's equal opportunity. Yeah. But, 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 but <laughs> the, the, the 20 thing, I think resist, yeah, the, the uh, you know, the resist, which is a part of this, yeah. resisted with free speech. Yeah. The thing with, that I started off with, the importance of being smart, the importance of being facile, the importance of knowing your history, um, the, uh, you know, the civil rights movement that some of you know about, well, you, all of my, you guys know about, whether, whether you embraced it or not, Stokely Carmichael, for example, was a brilliant A student at Howard University. He knew the history. He studied. We had when we had in the movements down in the south. We they we they trained those kids how to act when they were arrested. They taught they they taught them how to speak to people. They taught them how to resist. Black Lives Matter is a movement, and I said this from the very beginning. Oh oh, because of social media, yeah, you, you can get mob a mob together in a, in a heartbeat. Once you get them together, what what's next? What's next? And so this, this generation, I think the complexity of it all, oh, yeah, we have all these portals and everybody can resist and, and, and call people out and all that kind of stuff, but understanding the system and how to negotiate the system and how to elect people in office to do what you want them to do, those, that we're not getting. Like, do you remember those of you who remember movies? You, you remember that movie that Denzel Washington made a few years ago about that black college in Texas that had, uh, um, uh, it was the, um, uh, the, um, huh? yeah, no, 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 well, forget about that. No, no, no. The Great no. Debaters? Yes, oh, the Great Debate. Oh, the yes. Great Debate. We don't have, at Bowie, we don't have a debate society. Howard University doesn't have one. There was a time we had one. This was based on, you can, you can get it on Netflix. Yeah. Denzel Washington made this movie. It was called The Great Debate. He's an expert and, and, and that is very important because what he was, he was the teacher who taught these, these kids in the small black college how to debate. They were so good, they debated Harvard. And they won. 
That actually happened. Now, I can tell you, we can have we can have a, a, you know black black youth running all up and down the streets and and doing all this. And after they disperse, where do we go? You know, where do we go after that? And because of the short attention span, it's on to the next whatever. I was most uh, I was most encouraged when you brought it up when the Generation Z kids, the high school kids, came to Washington without any adults. No adults spoke there, and that eleven-year-old girl oh, yeah. from 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 uh, Alexandria, Virginia. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. She was astounding. I mean, I would have hired her in a minute to teach. We have, we have uh, speech classes at Bowie. This this young girl, eleven year old, could teach any class. I mean, she was she was wonderful. A lot of our students don't have the skill sets that would allow them to resist effectively. They can make noise. Right. And I'm going to say, you don't develop those skill sets by not listening to those you disagree with, right? So, in my book, I quote not only um, mental health experts who actually argue that it's better for your mental health to be exposed to ideas that are hateful and learn how to resist them. Uh, but I, then I quote activists. I mean, not only Barack Obama, but Van Jones and educators like Ruth Simmons who mm -hmm. say, you know, you owe it to your community if you want to be an effective advocate for these causes. You have to learn to respond to those ideas, not just with shouting them down or with violence, but with articulateness. So do we have time for um, one more question? You guys didn't say yeah, anything. Well, but we're, we're sort of filibustering. Can, 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 can we? Do you guys want to say anything? Anybody, any more questions or comments? Any opinion? Anything I say will just sound like my mother. Uh, uh, <laughs> no, 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 you're an individual. somebody in the back. Okay. Yes. I was just going to say that that short attention span, yeah. I think it's all the fault of a Sesame Street. Oh. Huh. Flash, 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 flash. Watch this, watch this. Starting our little preschoolers and our kids. I mean, they used to think, oh, come on, Sesame Street, you can't criticize it at all. Look how it helped to uh, teach kids how to read. But it also taught them how to be, their attention to be caught in a million different directions. So that's what I think. So let's censor Sesame Street. No, no way. Oh, the lady, why were you so quiet? The lady in the green, and you were the, the great first debate. one Thank here. Thank you for that. Yeah. Right. I've just been listening, learning. Well, what <laughs> do you think? Are you from Baltimore? Mm -hmm. What Are you a teacher? or? No, I work at the Department of Veterans Affairs. Mm -hmm. I saw it in my compass, and I thought I'd walk up after work. Well, so thank you so much for coming thank again. Well, well, many thanks to all of you. I feel yeah. with you. I think yeah. um, I don't think we really should censor in speech. Mm -hmm. Um, because what terrifies me the most is silent speech. Mm -hmm. That's spoken speech. Yeah, exactly. Because the more he speaks, yeah. when I mean he, I know. the person is 1600, the more he speaks, mm -hmm. the worse things be, worse to get. So I don't want him to shut up. I want him to keep talking and yeah. keep talking and yeah. keep talking. Because eventually, he's going to choke himself. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Keep calling it to Fox. Generally, 
Yeah. I'm more I'm more terrified of silent speech. Yeah. Yeah. I am spoken spoken word because see I cannot understand where you're coming from. Exactly. Or mm -hmm. your position if you're silent. I would rather for you to tell me. Exactly. I hate yeah. you. Yeah. I hate everything you stand for. Yep. Not to say anything at all. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Or to say it in very veiled, camouflaged language that goes down more easily. Yeah. Or in riddles, or in uh, cold words, yep. cold expressions. Absolutely. Yeah. See, because I've I missed George Wallace's other past. Because we knew where these You knew where they were coming from. Yeah. Rather than the Mitch McConnell's of today. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's me talking. Okay, well, we'll let you have the last word. Thank you. This podcast is a production of the Enoch Pratt Free Library and the Maryland State Library Resource Center. For more information and to access more library resources, please visit prattlibrary.org.